Welcome to the dinner party download. This is your icebreaker. So here we go. Uh, I've got a wee joke for you. How does NASA organize a party? I don't know. They plan it. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Newman from APM American Public Media. This is the Dinner Party Download, an hour-long audio atlas of the best in culture this week. You just got a joke from Sam Hewen, one of the stars of the TV phenomenon Outlander. That'll break the ice. Later, he'll answer your etiquette questions and tell us how the haggis is made. The offal and the offcuts, uh, and it's delicious. I think we should agree to disagree on that one. Indeed. Plus, acclaimed filmmaker and combat journalist Sebastian Younger has a new book. He'll tell us why some prefer wartime to peacetime. Also coming up, comedians slash spouses Moshe Kasher and Natasha Leggero talk about road trips gone wrong. Writer Faith Sally confronts her demons. And I visit a little cheese cave. Fun. But first, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. The Taliban in Afghanistan named a new leader. Violence outside Donald Trump's rally inside the Anaheim Convention Center. The inspector general has said the private server that Hillary Clinton set up left government secrets vulnerable. Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with Danielle Henderson. She is a writer for the HBO series Divorce. Danielle. What story are you going to be talking about at parties this week? Hey, guys. Uh, there is a really fun thing happening in South Korea. Okay. The city of Seoul recently sponsored what they call a space-out competition. Wow. If you can believe it. Oh my God, it's think... competitive now because... Yeah, we've been doing that for forever. That's right. I feel like I've been in this competition on my own for a while. You that... can ask any of my former bosses. Uh, so tell us more. What's <laughs> happening there? Seoul, uh, which is one of the most plugged-in cities in the world. Yeah, the most wired on Earth. Lots of interneting. Apparently, 40% of their day is spent looking at a phone. Mm. So they have sponsored a competition where people were sitting in a park this past Sunday for 60 to 90 minutes to see who could maintain the lowest stable resting heart rate. And somebody actually won. Without, I guess, looking at their phone? Without looking at their phone. Just kind of an electronics-free... It was, it was a small vacation from, from the little computers we carry around with us all day. So is that it? The whole point is just to get away from screens for a little bit? That's the primary point, but the, the, the added benefit is breaking people of their addictions. Apparently, uh, 15% of people who use smartphones all day show symptoms of addiction. Mm. So your heart rate might jump up a little bit when you're away from your phone and you can't see what's going on on your Instagram. Wow. So they're trying to make a concentrated effort for you to, to just calm down. And so? Who is the chillest guy in Seoul? Who, who, yeah, what happened? The winner was a young man named Crush. He's also a, a rapper. And this sounds more like R&B to me, but I, I brought you guys a clip. <laughs> Wow. Oh, yeah. I can see why that yeah. gentleman would be able to keep it smooth and mellow. Exactly. Yeah, those smooth jams. I mean, you've got to keep your heart rate pretty low to, to be on well, the ready. That's a question. Does your heart rate have to be low or can it be stable high? Because when I'm looking uh, at Instagram, seeing right, this pictures the, of my ex is happy, like it's consistent. <laughs> But it's just consistently... It's just an artery pulsing in your forehead to a steady it, rhythm. When a certain conglomerate uh, cable company drops my internet four or five times a week for no reason, <laughs> yeah. same thing. Consistent. Consistent. All right. There well, go. Danielle, thank you so much for sharing the story that I'm assuming you found on a screen. Well, many screens. I looked at like a console like the movie Sliver. All right. <laughs> now time for cocktails. 
the most obscure 90s reference possible. Google it, people. Uh, once again, we tell you a true tale from history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a water fountain that shoots up a refreshing arc of booze. First, the history part. This week back in 1930, a guy named Richard Drew patented one of the most useful household items ever. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Richard Drew helped the world stick together. Although early in his life, he didn't strike folks as a particularly brilliant dude. He only grudgingly went to college after he couldn't swing a career as a banjo player. And then he dropped out of college too. Finally, in the early 1920s, he finagled a lowly job at a company called 3M, which at the time sold mainly sandpaper. Richard's task? To try and sell the sandpaper to auto shops. One day at a shop, Richard overheard some workers cursing their fate. They'd been asked to paint a car two different colors. To do it, they'd paint the car one color, then glue newspaper over parts of it and apply the second color. But when they pulled off the gluey paper, paint came off with it. Suddenly, Drew got a million-dollar idea to create a gentle adhesive tape that wouldn't strip paint when you pulled it off. 3M had all the materials he needed. Sandpaper was just tape with grit stuck on it, right? Working nights, Drew invented the world's first masking tape. It was pretty simple, basically just wood glue and glycerin applied to thin crepe paper, but it was a massive success. Drew went on to oversee the invention of another item you probably have in a drawer somewhere, clear scotch tape. And today, a quarter century after his death, over 20% of 3M sales still come from Drew's products. So that was the history lesson. Now for a drink to go along with it, I am joined by Ryan Hughesby. He is the co-owner and bar manager of Tongue in Cheek in St. Paul, Minnesota, where Richard Drew helped build 3M's tape empire. Ryan, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. You heard this history lesson. Tell me about the drink it inspired. So 3M has always been a very important part of the history of the east side of St. Paul here. For decades, they were one of the main employers and economic drivers of this city. So we were really excited to come up with a cocktail related to Richard Drew. The sandpaper that he was delivering to auto shops for 3M was called wet or dry sandpaper. And wet or dry is kind of a term, typically with martinis, kind of determining how much vermouth you put into Mm, a martini. That's right. So that made us think of vermouth. So uh, where did you go from there? Mr. Drew created both masking tape and scotch tape during the Prohibition era. And in Minnesota, bootleggers here made a moonshine that was very popular and it was in demand all through the country. It was called Minnesota 13. Okay. So there's a distillery just up the street from us now. They make a white whiskey that pays homage to that moonshine. So we decided to use that as the base. So it ended up being a Manhattan-type cocktail. All right. So, Ryan, uh, tell me, how do you make this drink? You take a mixing glass with ice and you add one ounce of the Minnesota 13 Moonshine. Okay. And then half an ounce of each of the vermouths. So half an ounce of Dolan, half an ounce of Keeley's, and half an ounce of Petal and Thorn. 
a bitter herbaceous vermouth. Okay. And you add a dash of Angostura bitters. And we finish it with a little passion fruit sphere that we drop into the bottom of the cocktail. What is a passion fruit sphere? It's a little sphere, a little ball that's liquid in the center. So when you finish the cocktail, you get a wonderful little surprise passion fruit explosion at the end. That's like the opposite of moonshine. Moonshine is like (laughs) probably the coarsest, crudest alcoholic beverage. And now you have some really sophisticated passion fruit orb. This is quite a highbrow, lowbrow drink you're creating here. Yeah, absolutely. And what are you calling this drink? It's the Naughty Scotty. The original Scotch Tape mascot was a boy dressed in a kilt, and he was named Scotty McTape. So we named this the (laughs) Naughty Scotty. Ryan Hughesby of the bar Tongue in Cheek in St. Paul, Minnesota. Scotty McTape. That's right. It's an early cousin of Bodie McBoatface. <laughs> They're of the same clan, it's those two. It's a proud heritage. Indeed. Uh, folks, you can check out the recipe for that drink and a photo of the passion fruit orb Delicious. at dinnerpartydownload.org. Not org. And now, the guest list, in which interesting people list some interesting things. And our guests today are Natasha Leggero, one of the creators and stars of the Comedy Central show Another Period, and Moshe Kasher, who's a producer on that show and a stand-up comedy star. You may have seen him on Brooklyn Nine-Nine and on Marin. The two just got married and are currently road-tripping around the country doing a series of live shows they've dubbed The Honeymoon Tour. Mm. Here they are to introduce themselves and their list. You ready, hon? Yeah, hon. <laughs> I'm Moshe Kasher, comedian, author, actor, lover. And I'm Natasha Legero, actress, singer, dancer, visual artist. My wife. His wife. And uh, we're going to make a romantic road trip of our own. A lot of lovemaking, a lot of comedy, a lot of laughs, and a lot more lovemaking. But we thought today we would introduce to you some examples of the opposite. This is our list of the worst, most dystopian road trips in pop culture history. So the first one we're going to do is Vacation. For all you millennials out there, Vacation is a hilarious movie from the 80s about a family that goes on a big vacation together and everything goes wrong. I loved this movie, but it did sort of reflect every time my family tried to take a road trip. That place you were trying to get to and it never quite worked out the way you wanted and everyone would fight and an ant would die. Uh, <laughs> an ant would die every time you'd go on vacation. <laughs> I always make fun of Natasha when she describes her childhood. I'm always like, oh, that's right, you had uh, two evil stepsisters, is that right? And you went to a ball and you left a slipper there? Is that, am, I, am I getting this narrative correct? But, right, Vacation is a story about a family that has a utopian ideal of what it means to be a family, all contained in the metaphor of, what was it called, like Barney Land or whatever? Wally World. Wally World, right. Barney Land. And then they get to Wally World and it's just closed. Sorry, folks, we're closed for two weeks to clean and repair America's favorite family fun park. Sorry. (laughs) What? Clark, what are you doing? We watch his program. Buy his toys, we go to his movies. He owes us. He owes the Griswolds, right? F***ing A right he owes us. To me, that's that's really such a great climax to the movie. And I also like when he cheats, tries to cheat on his wife with Christy Brinkley. <laughs> that's a metaphor for actually Natasha and my relationship. <laughs> it's true because I recently had an affair with Barbara Walters. 
Moving on. No, Chrissy Brinkley's a model, right? That that joke didn't work the way I wanted it to. Yeah, Barbara Walter. I thought for some reason Chrissy Brinkley was a news person, but then I realized you're she's thinking a, she's a of um, David Brinkley. <laughs> you I may think. be right. Yeah, that's right. I would like to, if I could, reframe my joke. I recently had an affair with Ted Koppel. <laughs> Okay, number two. Uh, number mov- two. Number two. Moving into a new genre of media, music. You were Jesse James. I was the Magnetic Fields is an amazing band that both of us love and actually plays a integral role in the beginnings of our relationship. Isn't that right, Natasha? Well, I just, I got really into them, but I could never meet anyone who had ever heard of them. And then I met Moshe. Oh, I was the first person that you dated that had heard of the magnetic field? Well, they just weren't, I just, you know, I could always tell if someone was cool if they knew who they were. Just like how, like, you know, if someone likes Lenny Kravitz, you're like, oh, okay, I can't be friends with you. <laughs> it's like the opposite of that. Yeah, I would say that Stephen Merritt of The Magnetic Fields is one of the great songwriters of our generation. And also funny. Very funny, tongue-in-cheek. And uh, they do an album called The Charm of the Highway Strip, a concept album exclusively about road trips, but it's incredibly uh, unpositive. It's incredibly dour. (laughs) There are song titles such as Lonely Highway. There's a song called When the Open Road is Closing In. One of the great lyrics in a song called Two Characters in Search of a Country Song. Already an amazing sounding title. It says, you were just like me. You were one big bruise. In the game of life, we were playing to lose. Doesn't get more negative than that. How can I get more negative than that? Well, I'll tell you how. Cormac McCarthy's The Road. I only mentioned The Road because, A, I'm an American man and you're required to mention Cormac McCarthy whenever people ask you for a list of things. And also because I figure the Dinner Party Download fans would prefer a book to what I'm about to actually recommend, which is the video game The Last of Us. Oh, my God. Natasha, please. Cormac McCarthy's The Road is a dystopian look at a post-apocalyptic landscape where a father is walking his son to an unknown utopia that probably doesn't exist. And The Last of Us basically has just pilfered the plot of Cormac McCarthy's The Road and made an unbelievably playable, sad, engrossing video game. I mean, the question with video games is always if they could make a video game with a plot as intricate as a movie. And I think The Last of Us got as close as a video game has ever gotten. It's almost like art. Moshe, I have a question about this video game. Yeah, Natasha. Is this the video game you've been playing recently? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, that's uh, Fallout 4, which is also a dystopian journey across a hellscape. Now, The Last of Us, is there a lot of guns? Is there, like, arms that turn into machine guns? Where are we? Where? What exactly you know, is the landscape? Natasha, it's like <laughs> you think that I can't hear straight through the derision in your voice. We are in I different can. cities I, right now. I'm in New York. Moshe's in L.A., so we don't have each other and to yet play I, off of. And yet I can still feel the vibratory frequency of your judgment. guest list from comedians slash spouses Moshe Kasher and Natasha Leggero 
They're on the road together through June, performing a series of shows they call The Honeymoon Tour. Catch one of those soon, just in case the video game thing rips them apart. Yeah. All right, coming up, journalist Sebastian Younger, writer Faith Saley, and Outlander star Sam Hewen when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of public radio. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later in the show, Sam Hewen, star of the smart and sexy historical TV drama Outlander, laments the tribulations of his craft. It's very difficult to rip a woman's clothes off very quickly. Poor Sam. Yeah, but first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right. And this week, it's writer, filmmaker, and combat journalist Sebastian Junger. He's probably best known for two works, his best-selling book, The Perfect Storm, later turned into a blockbuster starring George Clooney, Mm. and his Oscar-nominated documentary, Restrepo, in which he tagged along with U.S. soldiers during some of the worst fighting of the Afghanistan war. Sebastian's latest book is called Tribe. In it, he argues humans are predisposed to live in communal tribes and uses this to explain why civilians, and especially soldiers, have a hard time readjusting to modern life after war. When we met, I asked him about the first chapter, in which he talks about events that perplexed colonial Americans. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. Colonists, white people along the frontier, very often ran off to join the Indian tribes. Or they were captured and adopted into Indian tribes. And when given the chance to be repatriated, they wouldn't go. They wanted to stay with the tribes. And Benjamin Franklin was sort of tearing his hair out about this. He was like, why is it? We have thousands of examples of colonists running off to join the Indians and not one example of an Indian who wanted to become one of us. And of course, that was a great affront to civilized society. I mean, these were these people were called savages. What could possibly be the appeal? What, well, what was it? What did they get from tribal society that they weren't getting from their own? Well, the writers at the time thought that one of the most appealing things was the fundamental egalitarianism of tribal society. There really wasn't an imposed hierarchy. There was not a class system. Uh, Wealth is very hard to accumulate in a nomadic hunter-gatherer economy. And people's reputation, their status in society is based, you know, more or less based on their own merits, on their own conduct. Of course, European society was very, very stratified. Colonial society was very stratified. You inherited wealth. You inherited power. Mm -hmm. All of that feels very unfair to the human animal. You actually write early on and this is a quote, the question for Western society isn't why tribal life might be so appealing. It seems obvious on the face of it, but why Western society is so unappealing. If tribal society is so great, why did we invent another way of living? Well, yeah, I mean, that's the big question. I, I just read a book called Sapiens by an amazing writer named Harari, and he, and he talks about that as well. Agriculture started a process that basically was a massive exception to two million years of human evolution, human experience, um, and it just changed all the rules. Because it made food easier to come by, I guess? Yeah, you could accumulate wealth, and then when you could accumulate wealth, you had capital, and then capitalism started, and and suddenly there were profound and unfair differences in societies, everything from serfs to kings, and that really was not true in most hominid societies, hominids being our ancestors, for all of the amazing benefits of the capitalist system, of technology, of medicine, of of Western science and Western thought, philosophy, the law, for all the incredible benefits, one thing you do lose is egalitarianism. And, And one thing that I found was really interesting is that when you collapse Western society, it actually reverts to this sort of close communal system, which is profoundly egalitarian. I, there was an earthquake in Avezzano, Italy in the 
early part of the 20th century, and the earthquake killed something like 90% of the inhabitants, something like that. It was absolutely ghastly. Oh and one of the survivors wrote, I'm, gonna, I'm doing this from memory. I hope I get it right. The, the earthquake produced what the law promises but does not deliver, the equality of all men. The survivors, noblemen, peasants, everybody, they had to band together to survive, and no social distinctions were made. For a little while, there was a kind of uh, utopia of hardship where everyone was the same and everyone needed each other. We saw that in... I'm from New York, and we saw that in New York after 9-11. I do want to be clear, though. You acknowledge that tribal living isn't some kind of utopia, because as you mentioned in the book, tribal societies can be violent, and modern society does bring us modern medicine, and there isn't feast and famine all the time. Oh, of course. I mean, I'm not advocating anything, right? I'm just saying we have to take into account the psychological consequences of living differently than we've evolved to live for 2 million years. We evolved to live in groups of 30, 40, 50 people Mm -hmm. who we knew very, very well with a relative egalitarianism. All of a sudden, that completely changed. And so what you find is that as wealth goes up in a society, uh, the suicide rate goes up. Uh, As wealth Mm -hmm. goes up, the rate of depression goes up. So yes, we have these wonderful benefits, and they have to be retained. But there is a consequence to living in a modern individualistic society, and the consequences are, are psychological, and they're and they're you know often quite dangerous to people. This is all kind of background to the more central argument of the book, which is that war, bizarrely, forces the kind of tribalism that modern society has set aside, and it can even make people happier in some ways. And in fact, at one point, you use a phrase that this just blew my mind, which is quote the positive effects of war on mental health. I think that runs counter to everything I and anyone has ever been led to believe. Justify that phrase. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, that's not my phrase, but what Emil Durkheim in in the 1800s, um, he was sort of the grandfather of sociology. And and what he found was that European countries at war saw their suicide rate go down, their murder rate go down. In 9-11 in New York City, the suicide rate immediately dropped. The murder rate, the violent crime rate, they all dropped. During the Blitz in London, the English authorities were prepared for mass casualties, of course, but also mass psychiatric casualties. And what they saw was that when the bombing started, admissions to psychiatric wards went down and then went back up when the bombing stopped. And so what you have in these catastrophes in wars uh, is this incredible coming together of society where you realize you're needed, your community needs you, and you really... Uh, you don't have, you, in a sense, you don't have time to commit suicide. You know, you're letting everyone down. Mm-hmm. Like, and I saw that in Sarajevo. That Sarajevo was my first war. Terrible, terrible thing. You know, I mean, this the Serb army, Bosnian Serb army, killed or wounded one fifth of the population of the city. You know, these are just civilians. And I was there last summer, the first time since the war. And I, I was talking to a woman uh, who had been badly wounded as a teenage girl during the war. She'd been hit by shrapnel. She'd had reconstructive surgery on her leg without anesthesia because there wasn't any. She literally lowered her voice and she said, you know, the war was terrible, but frankly, we all miss it. Yeah. Now, these are, these are civilians. These aren't macho soldiers who like combat. These are civilians. And she said, we, 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 we were generous back then. We helped each other. Now we're, now we're wealthy. Now we're cool. And we're not together. And it feels awful. But of course, you know, civilians are also traumatized by war and soldiers come back from wars with PTSD. There's a danger to your argument that it makes it sound like war is a good thing. Oh, yeah, of course. No one no one could ever say that. But but humans are wired, evolved to to adapt to adversity. 
and mm-hmm. adversity can be traumatizing, but it doesn't mean there aren't any psychological adaptations that are good also. So the question, I think, is mm. when, we, when we choose to send people to war, some of them will be deeply traumatized, but most of those people will experience an extreme closeness with the other members of their platoon, of their unit. And what we have to be on guard for is the kind of psychological withdrawal that they're going to go through when they come home from their deployment, from their platoon, and are sort of released into the sort of fractured, alienated modern American society. The same thing happens with Peace Corps volunteers. Something like half of them slide into a really profound depression when they get back to modern society. So it's not just soldiers. Mm -hmm. It's really anyone returning to this society has some real psychological resistance to it. Well, if we go with that, what do we do with that information? Like, how realistically do we make modern society more like a tribe without, you know, repeatedly coming up with an enemy to fight or experiencing a calamity that we have to bond together to fight? That's a great question. I mean, I'm going to be a little bit flip, but I'm going to say probably ban the car. Really? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's really fractured communities is that people can work 60 miles from where they live. That's all, I'm not advocating that, and it's not going to happen until we run out of gas. But, <laughs> yeah. but you know, one of the things you see in a calamity is that people suddenly don't have access to cars. They're stuck in one place, and, and it forces a communalism that they look back and, and, and often can be quite nostalgic about. But more realistically in this country, I think there's two things that we could do. One thing, I think, is having national service. If everyone had some kind of common experience, um, I think it would be Im- enormously beneficial. Not necessarily even military, maybe? No. Uh, 18-year-old boys already have to sign up for the draft. I think girls should too. And I think there should be a a non-military option Hmm. for national service. The possibilities are almost endless and would be a great unifying force for this country. And the other thing, and I get to this at the end of the book, there's an enormous amount of contempt in the American political discourse right now politicians, there are media figures who are literally speaking with contempt about their fellow citizens. And, and I say in my book, I mean, that contempt is different from debate, from conflict, from disagreement. All that stuff is very healthy for a democracy. Contempt is something you, it's a tone you use when you're talking about the enemy. Mm-hmm. And so soldiers come back and they see, you know, it's like children coming back and, and, and seeing their parents screaming at each other. Mm-hmm. And they see this country that they fought for And the country is at war with itself. That, I think, is incredibly psychologically disturbing to someone who's already psychologically vulnerable from their experience overseas. Uh, I mean, racist speech, even though it's protected under the First Amendment, Mm -hmm. it's just not done, right? Contemptuous speech, I think, should go the same route. It's always protected under free speech, but it should be understood to be so damaging to this nation that it's basically unacceptable. Sebastian Younger. His new book is called Tribe. It came out this week. And folks, a while back, we spoke to Sebastian about his Oscar-nominated documentary, Restrepo. You can hear the seeds of this book's ideas in that interview. You'll find it at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, time to eavesdrop. Faith Saley is a regular contributor to CBS Sunday Morning and co-hosts the PBS series Science Goes to the Movies. Public radio fans know her as a regular panelist on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Her new book is called Approval Junkie. Today, we overhear an excerpt. 
Hi, I'm Faith Saley, and I'm going to be sharing with you a story from my new book, Approval Junkie. This is from my chapter called The Exorcism. I had been married to my first husband, let's call him my husband, for maybe three months when he asked me if I would consider having an exorcism. So I said, um, yeah, I'd consider it. Do you think I need one? And he said, I don't know. Sometimes I think there's something dark inside you you can't control. And maybe we could get rid of it. That may sound crazy to you, but this was a time in my life when I was incredibly depressed. I was living in L.A. I had this really crappy acting career going on. My marriage was commensurately crappy. And I really missed my mom, who had died a few years earlier when I was 26. Now, before we called a priest, I decided at the behest of my dear sister-in-law that I would try to heal myself in Sarasota, Florida, in a strip mall at this Ayurvedic center, which is the ancient Indian healing, to undergo something called a panchakarma. So I I arrived, and there was wall-to-wall old carpeting for the yoga room. That gives you a sense of things. And there were a lot of sort of um, Pier 1 imports uh, blankets hanging on the wall that was supposed to make it Indian. And I told them right up front that I was there to release fear and anger because I was afraid of my husband leaving me. I was afraid I would never be a mother. We weren't having a lot of sex. I was afraid of never having the acting career I wanted to. And I was angry. I was angry at my husband. So I started in yoga. Then we moved on to enemas. Um, That was not my forte. I knew I was there to surrender my metaphorical and spiritual crap. But I still didn't feel like I was having the breakthrough I wanted to have. And then I get into a room for this kind of uh, cathartic massage called Tarpana. And the healer named Janine, who had on a turban and a caftan and was very strict, think Debbie Allen in fame, she was goading me to yell at fear. She told me to take the fear out of my body and yell at fear to leave. So I was yelling at the top of my lungs at fear. Fear, leave, get out of here, go, I don't want you. And Janine said to me, you're acting, I don't believe you. And I was like, are you kidding me? I just flew across the country. I can't get a job in LA and now nobody believes my acting in a strip mall in Sarasota? So I decided that the only way I was really going to own enlightenment was to go through something called Kaya Kalpa, which had been described to me as a complete rebirth experience. I was told it was grueling. I was told I would release something painful. And I was going to do it. So jump cut to me in the middle of Kaya Kalpa. I'm covered in cold clay, being lowered into the hottest bath you could ever imagine. It's amazing I didn't have, like, third-degree burns from it. There are Janine and Light, the woman who ran the place, in their caftans, like the world's most demanding midwives, telling me, release it, release it, release whatever's inside you. What is it? And I just said, my mom. 
and I started to sob. Sob in a way I hadn't since she had died like eight years before. Now that I still had sadness to release about my mother may not surprise you because people can spend their whole lives clinging to mourning, but it surprised me because I had arrived with this presumptuous certainty about what ailed me and what I needed, and none of those things included just a very simple grieving session for my mom. Somehow after this exorcism, I knew that she meant no less to me if I could permit myself to be happy. The happiness didn't diminish the loss. And I was also released from my marriage because soon after I returned from this healing experience, I ended up in New York City and I started to possess myself. Faith Sally, her new book, Approval Junkie, Adventures in Caring Too Much, is out now. All right, we're going to take a break. But coming up, Sam Hewen, star of the hit star series Outlander, talks haggis and hair care. A cheese nerd warns us about the perils of plastic. And we hear a new track from musician Steve Gunn. When the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, Brendan meets the inventor of a miniature cheese cave for your home. It has a mini echo, too. That's nice, but first it's time for our <laughs> weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week is actor Sam Hewen. And just in case your mom, sister, partner, or cubicle neighbor hasn't informed you yet, uh. Sam stars as the Scottish warrior Jamie in the hit TV show Outlander, based on Diana Gabaldon's best-selling historical romance novels. Here is the gist of the story. Claire, a married English nurse from the 1940s, mysteriously time travels to Scotland in the 1740s, and there falls for Jamie, whose clan is fighting against the British. She marries him, and now she has a different husband in each era. And you thought your relationship was complicated. <laughs> That's right. It's a modern <laughs> romance. The acclaimed series is now in the midst of a second season on the Stars Network. When Sam joined us in the studio a few weeks ago, Brendan greeted him like this. Sam, welcome back to the year 2016. I like that. You nice like segue. that? Yeah, yeah, it's good. How does it yeah, feel to be in to be back modern here, day America? In modern day America in New York. Yeah, it's been good. We brought the Scottish weather. We've just been discussing how glorious it is. It the, is the hail, miserable, rain, and miserable. It's very gray. Yeah. yeah. Also, there's running water here in 2016 New York, and there's plenty of disinfectant, which turns out to be a problem in the show. <laughs> that is true. I think hygiene back in the 1700s was uh, yeah much to be desired. But everyone's hair looks great, and there there were no hair products yet. Do you know that maybe says something about you know washing your hair? Maybe you don't need to. Uh huh. Does after a while clean itself? Noted. I'm going to use that. Doesn't apply to the rest of your body, though. <laughs> oh wait, bummer. Um. Anyway, I I think when some people hear the word historical romance. They might be inclined to dismiss the show as something steamy instead of something of substance. What is your go-to argument that that is not the case? It is. It is absolutely more than that. People may make this assumption that it's you know a, a bodice ripper or a, you know a, a romance novel you know that's come come to screen. But actually, Diana Gabaldon, who wrote these novels, you know, has put so much into them. There's a real historical side. There's action, adventure, spiritual side. There really is something for everyone there. And I think as soon as you you open this 
this book or you start watching the show, you know, it really takes you on this this interesting journey. Although there is some bodice ripping. Yeah, right? having said that, there I think someone does rip a bodice in the first episode, <laughs> but um, uh, which is remarkably difficult to do. Oh. Um, and I think you know that's because we go back to the authenticity of this of the show. I mean, even our costumes are magnificent. There's all these lace and underclothing, and it's very difficult to rip a, a woman's clothes off very quickly. <laughs> it's credit very, where credits due. Oh, yeah, it's very complicated. So the show has been uh, praised for focusing on female desire, mm. but also for showing men's vulnerability. There was an uh, article in this week's New Yorker, yes, I don't know if you saw yes, it, where article. Emily uh, Nussbaum, the TV critic, praised the show. But she focused uh, in particular on a scene that was one of the last on one of the last episodes mm-hmm. of the first season uh, where your character, Jamie, is assaulted by a man. Mm-hmm. And then in subsequent episodes, the repercussions of that assault play out. And, you know, fans of the book weren't even sure that this could be pulled off. Tell us about the discussions leading up to the shooting of that that scene. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, the last two episodes, my character is tortured, but part of that torture is, is he's raped. His mind is broken down. Yeah. And um, I think, you know, that it's it's very interesting to see his sort of journey from being this, you know, this traditionally strong, yeah. uh, you know, heroic character that it kind of is reduced to nothing and then how he rebuilds himself. So you know that this torturous scene is coming up. How do you prepare <laughs> yourself for it? It's a good question. And, you know, I was very aware of it. And actually... It scared me a bit, but also really excited me. And I think, you know, as an actor, you're constantly looking for for challenges before you walk, you know, on stage. You know, there's that moment of you know, terror. Can I do this? Yeah, absolute yeah. terror. Yeah. And then you get into it and it's, you know, you, you sort of find some sort of, you know, cathartic um, reward in it. But we did discuss the scenes a lot and how we wanted, you know, the viewers to see it and what we wanted them to feel and experience. And ultimately, you know, I'm very proud of, of what we've done. Yeah. Well, that that obviously comes from, you know, these we're talking about these novels, which were fiction, Mm. but there's a lot of very real Scottish history Mm. in in this. A lot. But um, you're Scottish. What about the history surprised you? What have you been learning? Yeah, well, no, absolutely. In fact, the whole premise of the show is that certainly second season, there was this this great battle at Culloden and the, the Scottish army were massacred. But then after that, the repercussions from the British were, were severe. There was the banning of, of bagpipes, of what? wearing of tartan, of mm. the clan culture. Or there was, you weren't allowed to speak Gaelic. This whole um, way of life was was pretty much eradicated. Yeah. Um, and that's what Jamie and Claire are, are trying to protect and save. Are you, were you saying bagpipes were eradicated? Yeah. I know. I mean, I'm going to say, some actually, people. There's, that's not. <laughs> next, next to car alarms. Wow, like, that actually... is sacrilegious. All right. And I oh, will man. be. Brendan, in that case, don't oh. get in an arm wrestling match with yeah, Sam over the cultural value of bagpipes. All right. Before we do that, um, we need you to answer our listeners' etiquette questions. Ah. We told them you were coming, right. and you seem heroic, and you're going to help them. <laughs> I'm Ready? Very excited about this. All right. I'm slightly nervous. Oh, don't be. This first question comes from someone named at Sanity0121 mm-hmm. in Western Australia. Sent okay. this via Twitter. At Sanity wrote, you're on a date and get order envy. Oh. How do you make your date swap meals? Ah, oh, that is a tough one. Yeah. Probably ask to swap seats. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, you're like, oh. Like the sun's in my eye. Yeah, or you'll get a better view if you sort of over. And then hopefully that. You're like, oh, what do you know? I have the crab cake you sandwich. Just, you just dive straight in there, start eating it. <laughs> and I, oh, oh, I've started this. Just get your saliva in there and then it's too late. Yeah. How was your pork? Is it all right? The, okay, crab cakes are delicious. That's smooth. I like that. You go for the seat, not for the food. Yeah. Or just yeah. distract them. Distract them and then just swap them very quickly. <laughs> so let's move to our next question. Hope I'm doing well here. Jenny from LA writes, I'm heading to Scotland for a study abroad program. I have a pretty good suspicion that my host family is going to offer me haggis. I'm not sure I can hack it. How can I politely <laughs> refuse them? 
I don't want to insult them. Uh, ah. For those who don't know, you want to tell people what haggis is? Yes. Well, it depends what time of year you go, of course, because if you go out of season, they might not have caught any because um, they are quite rare, especially during the summer. You are totally lying about haggis yeah, You're lying right to Jenny. You're li- you switch seats with people. You're lying to Jenny. Sorry, Jenny. So haggis is, if I'm remembering, it's like the stomach lining of something stuffed with of a something. Sheep. It's a sheep. Yeah, stuffed with all with the, the offal and, and the offcuts and a lot of pepper. Mm. Uh, and it's delicious. So the haggis, just stuff it down. Just eat it. Yeah. Uh, and you might actually enjoy it. Scottish hot dogs. I, I don't know what's in a yeah. hot dog. but we, I, we make fun of haggis and it's like yeah. what the hell is in a hot dog yeah, yeah exactly all right well there you go jenny eat it and uh enjoy it yes <laughs> here's something from rebecca in north carolina rebecca writes you realize that housekeepers at your hotel are rifling through your bags daily oh do you tell the management or just leave more messes for them mm. i like that those are your only two <laughs> options oh, rebecca's yeah. giving you i thought i'd leave something like a message for them maybe mm-hmm. that's yeah, good i like the middle ground message yeah yeah, just, menacing th- um, or just goofy or just something like I'm watching you. I think you should maybe um, play into your type and maybe um, start buying bonuses and like putting them <sighs> in there in your bag exactly. and stuff like Plant that. Plant things that they're not expecting. And that's right. And just that's, see how far you can go with that. That's right. Just totally <laughs> freak them out. Like yeah. I don't know what what else would we put that's in there? La- like a lady's that? wig. A cat. <laughs> they would, they would <laughs> never imagine <laughs> Keith Richards. <laughs> You know, stuffed monkey. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> Who'd have thunk? Wow. By the way, you know that your bag has been rifled through if the bodice is ripped. That's right. I have a question, though, about this. Do you guys, you know, they still put safes in hotel rooms. They like, do, yes. I've never used one, and I have some sort of valuable stuff. Have you ever used, do you guys use safes? I I have used them occasion. Okay. Um, I think dare I, I ask why, like, what you're putting well, in I, it? He put what Keith I, Richards in there. Putting my yeah. bodice in there. Yeah. yeah. No, once I was in a very posh hotel, and... I left my wallet in my jacket mm. and then um, I flew to like UK and then to Brazil and I landed in Brazil and got a call and someone had cloned all my cards. Oh my goodness. And they'd gone out to the local grocery store and bought like some apples and wow. some bananas, but no- nothing, I, you know, nothing go buy major. something. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah, go they buy didn't something. buy like a Range Rover or anything like yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's yeah. funny. And that could only Very work gentle. like in a place where people weren't watching a lot of TV now because otherwise they would be like. Stealing your identity. Or they might be surprised and find yes. there's nothing on the credit card. And that really got maxed out. Yeah. <laughs> like, wow, oh, no. stars. Wow. They're like, man, Sam didn't cut a very good deal with his network. Yeah. <laughs> it's not working uh, out. Sam yeah. Hewen, thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. I hope that they follow those, those strict instructions uh, <laughs> and, and never go on a date with me because it's, it's going to be interesting. Good luck with that. Sam Hewen. I believe we get points for not mentioning Scotty McTape to him, by the way. You can, oh, yes. You can catch his show Outlander on the Stars Network. Word of warning, by the way, after Sam's visit, many of our colleagues checked out that show, and they're now obsessed. That's right. So if on our sister show Marketplace you hear the sound of bodices being torn asunder, oh, my. you'll know why. Yes. And hey, if you have an etiquette question, we'll find someone of note to answer it for you. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click Contact. And now the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. Enrico, when you buy fancy cheese, where do you store it? Uh, in my mouth. All right. You yes, know? but most folks eat a little, wrap it up, then uh. throw it in the fridge. And it turns out that's what you shouldn't do. Yeah, you should eat it. 
with your mouth. Again, yes, you should. But let's say you're not a gluttonous cheese vacuum okay. who's actually lactose intolerant. Uh, you might want another option. That's where Jessica Sennett comes in. She's a cheesemonger who got tired of watching her nice cheeses die an early death. Oh, no. So she invented the cheese grotto, kind of a little wooden cheese cave for your home. That's cute. You have a look. I met her the other day in an office as echoey as a cheese cave. You'll hear that. And I first asked... Does cheese really go bad? Cheese can go bad, but it takes a lot of finagling to make it go bad, I would would say. And it also, if you look at really the mainstream way that we store our cheese, we use plastic wrap. And plastic wrap actually kills cheese. Really? Yes. (laughs) Um, The reason is because plastic in most situations is not breathable. And so um, cheese, because it is a living fermented product, mm. it needs some oxygen in order to really flourish. What are the factors that go into cheese storage that one needs to consider? Cheese caves are a great template for looking at what cheese needs to thrive. Cheese needs a cool environment. Um, and by cool, you don't mean velvet underground posters. <laughs> and- <laughs> well, I don't know. Cheese grotto. It's yeah, no, that's cool. pretty cool looking. Um, the temperature range is usually in a cave um, between 45 to 55 degrees, so slightly warmer than refrigeration temperature. Mm-hmm. Um, however, refrigeration temperature is fine as long as you have the humidity level. The humidity level is really crucial of 80% to 99% relative. Oh my goodness, wow. Yeah, so if it's a little bit too dry in there, then of course the cheese will dry out. All right, so so those factors are on your mind. Now we're looking at this box. So this is about 12 inches high, seven inches across, on the right and left, and the front. There are glass mm-hmm. panels, so you can see it's, it's an attractive device. It looks like a it looks like you could like keep a bird in it or something like that. It's, how do you, how would you describe <laughs> what we're looking at here? Yeah. So actually, um, yeah. When you talk about keeping a bird in the grotto, um, there is uh, traditionally, if you look at what uh, European civilizations have done for storing cheese before refrigeration, they've used these cheese safes, which are essentially mm. wooden structures and then fine mesh screen around the sides, mm. so you get that aeration. The grotto is kind of like the pimped out version of that. <laughs> it's it's something that has glass paneling on the sides and the front so you can see what is going on inside. And the back paneling has uh, some architectural details for airflow mm. so that you can have some adjustability um, if the unit itself gets a little bit too high in the humidity level. So isn't this basically a humidor, a cigar humidor for cheese? Yeah, right. yes. That's what I've uh, come to describing it as. It's more of a cheese humidor because um, it uh, sends off a light bulb in people's heads. Actually, the same devices that are used for cigar humidors that help retain the humidity that are made out of stone predominantly or clay, um, we've used that same technology for the cheese grotto. So along with the box comes an actual clay stone humidor. It's something that you submerge into water and it will slowly release that water over time. If you had this on your counter, though, with the glass panes, this would be like a torture device for mice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's going to be hard to access. They, they might uh, be jealous that they yeah. can't get inside. They'll but... salivate and they'll scratch at it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry for whoever lives in this apartment right now. <laughs> but um, This is a beautiful device. You clearly have put a lot of thought into it. But I do have to say, the, for some people in America, the idea of like a special, space just for your cheese 
feels very precious, maybe mm-hmm. a little 1%, <laughs> what would your response be to folks who are saying, really, is this a device I need in my kitchen? I would say that, you know, it's a new thing. It is a new thing. Um, and it's kind of like the microwave or a lot of devices that people didn't really see its value um, or understand its function. So, yeah, it's one of those things that is growing with the specialty cheese industry. Mm-hmm. And I just saw that it's the specialty cheese industry was $17 billion. Um, this wow. Yeah, so it, it's growing, and it's growing more rapidly than other styles of cheese. Could one keep their Kraft American singles in this device? I've actually never eaten Kraft American singles. I'm just going to say that right now. Wow. Um, you never in the singles scene? <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> no. Jessica Sennett, her company is called Cheese Grotto. You can see pictures of her and her mouse torture device at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And I just want to point out that a mouth is kind of a mini cheese cave, Brendan. All right. Uh, Folks, that's the Dinner Party Download for this week. Our producer is Jackson Musker. Nina Patak is our associate producer. Christina Lopez is our associate digital producer. The show this week was engineered by Ben Tolliday. Larissa Anderson is our executive producer. And if you liked what you heard, please head to iTunes, search Dinner Party Download, and subscribe to our podcast. There you'll find past episodes featuring guests like Scarlett Johansson and the band Chairlift, plus special new podcast-only fare. That's all true. And now before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to spin on your way to or returning from this week's parties. And it comes from a man we've had on this show before, Steve Gunn. His new album is called Eyes on the Line. It comes out June 3rd. Here's the single. It's called Ancient Jewels. Bon appétit. Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. All right, man. Good show. Yeah. By the way, nice outfit. Oh, thank you. I like it. Is that like is that like a $3,000 suit? Yeah, I've been saving up or something. Mr. Hewan, your car is here. Oh, got to run.